Business of Sport podcast with myself and Spio and my ever-present co-host Jabu Emitwa. Today we're doing something a bit different where we're having what we call our specials, where we are privileged to have very astute and highly eloquent people in the industry who have years and years of experience and the fantastic things that they do in sports, joining us to come and share their story with us. Jabu, who do we have for our audience? Today, Adam, we are very privileged to have one of the world's leading sports lawyers, barrister at Blackstone Chambers, and also the host of the Sports Law Podcast, Nick DeMarco KC. Nick, thank you so much for coming on to the Africa Business of Sport Podcast. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Um, I'm doing very well and delighted to be speaking to your audience in Africa. You are very much well esteemed within the Africa Sports Law circles due to the many cases that you have done throughout your career. The papers you write as well are very adaptable to the African context. There's a paper you wrote or an article rather a year ago where you spoke about sports and politics and the intersection of the two, which is very much topical in Africa as well. So it's an, it's an honor to have you and hopefully the story that you share around your experiences in sports law and working within football comes through and resonates with our audience. Nick, first of all, could you firstly describe how you came to be a sports lawyer in the first place? Because reading from what you've done in the past, is it seems like you went into the career quite late, um, relatively. So it's interesting to hear your story and how you became a sports lawyer. Yes, it's true. I didn't even decide to be a lawyer until I was in my late 20s. And in fact, it was a Nigerian friend of mine who said to me that, because I was, I was going to turn 30 and I hadn't gone to university still. I was, you know, doing other things when I was younger. I was a film and video editor, but I also worked in nightclubs and different things like that. And um, I was, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? Because when you when you get to near thirty, you suddenly think, oh, that's going to get old, and you know, I'm no longer. Even though now it seems really young to me. But anyway, back then, I thought, what am I going to do? And this friend said to me, you should be a lawyer because you're really good at arguing. And I said, yeah, but it's going to take like five, six years before I qualify. I'll be thirty-five years old. I'll be so old. And he said, yeah, it's better than being 35 and having nothing. And it was very wise words. So I decided uh, to study law and I went to UCL in London um, and I found the first year really difficult. I was not the best in the class because everyone else had been straight out of uh, school and doing their A-levels and gone into university. And I hadn't done anything like that for 10 years. So I found the first year difficult. Then in the second year, I started mooting which is where you have pretend uh, courts and you make speeches and so on. And I realized I was very good at it. I won the national competitions and so on. And I also started to be the best in the class at my exams, probably because I enjoyed the mooting and gave me something to do. So I got a good degree, got a pupillage at Blackstone Chambers, where I still am now, and thought I would be a human rights lawyer and do public law. That was what I was interested in. And once I started working, I found I preferred commercial law and employment law, which was, we had to do all when we started, which is, by the way, my advice to people is very good to do a bit of everything. Don't over-specialize when you're too young. So we did a bit of everything, but very early on, I had my first football case, a case just about the payment of wages of a player. And because I am a football fan and I love football, but also because I had a bit of experience in life. I wasn't just one of these lawyers who come straight out of school. 
I think I was better at dealing with clients and what they wanted was a commercial solution, a practical solution. That's what football usually wants, not uh, an essay or law. And I was able to give them that to settle the case and I enjoyed it. Solicitor gave me another case. And so it was a bit of luck to have the first one. But then I started seeking those sorts of cases to help the club I supported for free for many years to do all sorts of things to gradually build up to where I'm lucky enough to do today where I just do sports cases and um, about 80% or 90% is in football. I think this is a perfect segue into the next point where you've done so many interesting things in the world of sports and I love one thing that you said that because you had experience in life and you've probably developed your human side more you were able to go a top notch higher than most lawyers who would have just come straight out of school and use a theoretical approach to solve people's issues. Take us through the journey for you when you had the opportunity to represent Newcastle at one point in time. Tyson Fury is one of my favorite boxers and I really like him as a person. So I know that you worked with him as well. And then you've also been part of a situation which merged law and human rights where you represented Azim Rafiq and, and the racism issue that he had and also one city, you know, right now they are in the news for a lot of issues. Just take us through that journey. Yes, I will. And perhaps if I give you a bit of pre-story to it, because it might help how, uh, how I got there. When I started, a lot of my clients were football agents and players and often players through football agents. Plus, I acted for QPR, which was the team I still support, and uh, was my boyhood team. And uh, I had a couple of big cases for QPR early on that were national cases, third-party ownership and later financial fair play. But it also led me to act for Joey Barton, uh, who, who your listeners may have heard of. He was a very famous footballer in England. And when Man City won the Premier League, some, oh, it must be like 10 years ago now, eight years ago, I forget when, but it was a match against QPR, that match. And um, so it was my club playing them and they won 3-2, if I remember, and that match meant they won the Premier League. Joey Barton got sent off for a um, a series of things, which started with um, a, an altercation with Sergio Aguero, and then he he... No, with Tevez, started with Tevez, and then Sergio Aguero, who we knocked to the ground, and then there was a attempted headbutt on Vincent Company. So there was this whole series, and the FA threw the book at him, and I represented him in that case. And later on, another very big case in betting, where he got one of the longest bans. And I say all that because um, it reminded me, when you asked me the question, of Tyson Fury, who I represented much later, and I can't talk about Tyson's case because like many of my cases, it's in closed arbitration. A lot of these cases are in football arbitration or their boxing arbitration where the proceedings are completely confidential. You're not even allowed to talk to people about what they're about. But I got to know him and met him a couple of times and um, you know he was going to be a witness and so we had to go through all the evidence. And it reminded me, because in both cases, uh, I don't read many sports biography books, but I've got both Joey Barton's autobiography and Tyson Fury's, and I've, I've had to read them both to get to know them more because of the different cases I was doing with them. 
And they're both very interesting because they talk about serious issues of depression and mental health issues that they have suffered and come. Uh, and I found that it's not a legal point, but I just find that very interesting because a lot of people at the top of sport, the work really hard, very strong personalities in many ways. But we forget that some of them have some very, very difficult challenges as well um, that, uh, you know, I would find very difficult to face and have had to overcome those, maybe even exploit those in order to achieve. And so, you know, representing Tyson taught, taught me that. Um, most of the cases now are to do with things like financial regulation of football, which is huge, or what we call the owners and directors test, so takeovers of football clubs and, and how people can take over and who's allowed by the league and so on. And those cases, which are um, sometimes very complex cases and can go on for a year, two years or more, are, are some now the biggest sports law cases. Perhaps you wouldn't have thought that before, but, but now they are. And so Newcastle was an example of that. It was a tremendously interesting case because not only is it for, you know, one of the biggest clubs in the world, and they are one of the biggest clubs in the world, they have a fantastic fan base. It had just about every issue you could think of going on with public international law, you know, the relationship between the Saudi state and the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Then you had the whole issue of piracy, alleged piracy and BN sport and uh, commercial disputes with with uh, the, the Saudis and the Premier League perhaps being affected with this. And you had issues about regulation, whether the regulator ought to be taking into account all these things or should just be applying the rules as we said so you had all those sorts of issues including geopolitical issues play out in in what was a case really just about the takeover of a club and it was a fascinating case but it was also one of the most rewarding cases i've done because when we succeeded in the end and the premier league allowed the takeover to go through the impact on the city of Newcastle is something I never experienced. I was lucky enough to go up there a couple of times uh, to matches and see in the city um, the, the the fans are so happy with what's happened there. And uh, they're so grateful for all the work that the, the legal team did as well. It, it, makes, it makes a difference from doing a normal case behind closed doors that nobody ever hears about. Even though this was behind closed doors, it makes a difference. And uh, it was it was a great thing to be involved in. The last thing you asked me about then was the Azim Rafiq racism hearings. So with it with Azim Rafiq, that's obviously a cricket case. Done a few cricket cases in the past as boxing and so on. But I only did had a small role in this case. But it was a very interesting. I did this case pro bono, so I, it was one of those ones where you give something back because I. I was very impressed with Azim highlighting racism in English cricket uh, and whistleblowing about it. And he was then attacked by a lot of people in the hierarchy for uh, whistleblowing on racism. Um, and that meant that they had these disciplinary proceedings where he was a witness giving evidence about the racism he had experienced. And he wanted that hearing to be in public because it, there, there were real issues of public interest there. You know, then one of the national sports having institutional racism, it was even discussed in the British Parliament. So you can't say this is some kind of dispute that should be confidential. And so 
my job was to make an application that the disciplinary hearing in front of the English cricket board should be held in public. And that had never happened before. And at first, there was some resistance to our application because we were doing something new. And, you know, people like often to, um, we have an English expression, I don't know if it travels, don't wash your dirty linen in public. That's often the way uh, people um, up, uh, think about these things. And we said, no, this is of public importance. It needs to be in public. And so we won the application in the end. And the hearing did recently take place. And the press were able to sit in on it and report it live. That was an interesting development that may affect sports tribunals throughout the world later. And the last thing you asked about was the Manchester City case. That is obviously a very interesting case for all of us here, and I'm sure many around the world. Um, I am careful what I say about it because I may be involved in some way. I can't even say in what way. So I need to be careful, but I think what I can say is what's in the public domain, which is you have got 115 charges against Manchester City. Uh, I've done a lot of sports cases before. I've never seen one with that many charges against a, a club or a participant. And many of them are for very serious alleged breaches that border on or perhaps are, because we haven't seen yet, suggesting dishonesty or fraud of some kind. It's, certainly, it's, it's, it's possible that, that that is what the charges are getting at, some of those charges. So it's a very, very serious case. And that's why I, I, I think it will take years to resolve. It won't be done quickly. It'll take between two and four years, has been my prediction, before it's finally determined, including by appeals. There may be many satellite litigation that arises out of it. And if the charges are proven, given there's so many and they're so serious, you would have to expect a serious sanction, and that's a sporting sanction, whether it's points deductions or, or something even greater than that. So it's obviously something that we are all watching very carefully. Nick, given the fact that you've worked on so many interesting sports cases for your favorite club, for huge individuals like Ivan Tony, Tyson Fury, Joey Barton, for clubs as well, what is your definition of success when it comes to the cases that you work on? For you, is it the fact that your clients would have their own way? For you, is it the fact that ethics and, and goodwill is put through? Because every lawyer has their approach to know what is victory for them so for you what is a good case what is your definition of victory when you look at sports case that's a very good question and i think my answer would be um to find a practical solution to my client because i would say 80 percent of the cases i do either settle uh maybe sometimes at the door of the hearing or, or you don't actually take the whole case. You you look at the case and then you say, well, let's just let's just try and do this or do a deal on that or, or whatever it is. There's there's some kind of settlement. It's rare that you actually go all the way through and win or lose. And even when you do go all the way through and win or lose, it's quite often you win on some points and you lose on others. To have a sort of absolute win or absolute loss is even more rare. So I've always got in my head, not winning or losing cases, of course, that's important, but I've really always got in my head, how do I give the client what they want? You know, if they want to sign a particular player or if they want to 
um, uh, be able to have money to do this or whatever it is. How how do you best get them at that point? And it's it's as much legal sometimes as it is tactical. Uh, uh, but that's what you have to think about. Uh, you have to think about giving the client something that's useful to them. Don't think about yourself. Don't think about winning a case and being in the spotlight. We all like that. We all like to have that. But um, at the end of the day, what the client wants is not to spend lots of money on lawyers if they can help it and to get a good result early on. And if you get that for the client, then they'll come back to you or they'll tell their other friends who have football clubs that that lawyer will give you a sensible solution. Whereas if you just think about yourself and the legal arguments, you might get in the headlines, but then the client might say, well, that cost me a lot of money and I didn't get anything useful out of it. And they're not going to come back to you again. So both for them and also for your own good, always think about the the best way to achieve something useful for your client. That's what I call success. Now let's speak about the remuneration very briefly of sports lawyers in particular, because it may be many people listening to this who are already sports lawyers or are sports law students who, given the fact that the football industry and the sports industry as a whole has become a billion-dollar industry where many different actors are now making business out of having sports clients or having some sort of relationship with sports teams. With sports lawyers in particular, I mean, we've heard in the past few weeks reports of Lord Panic, who is reportedly representing Man City in the latest Premier League charges against them earning the same amount that Kevin De Bruyne, for example, earned per week. You know, crazy reports that, that you hear like that. What is your experience of the scrutiny that sports lawyers in particular and agents, which we're going to touch on, get in terms of the remuneration that they receive from their different clients within the sports industry? Yeah, the interesting question. Um, and perhaps I should keep my voice down because David Panic, Lord Panic, is in the room next to me. That's his office. We have an office next door to each other. Um, and don't necessarily believe all you read in the paper about how much he gets paid. The truth is that historically, sports lawyer, sports law has not been the best paid area in law. And there's a couple of good reasons for that. First of all, until recently, there's not so much money in sport as compared to, say, you know, if you work in oil and gas or banking or a big commercial client. But secondly, everybody wants to be a sports lawyer. I mean, you know, I'm exaggerating, but it's seen as a really sexy area to practice. And so you can have very well paid, uh, we call them KCs now, silks in England, senior barristers, very well paid KCs who do commercial work, let's say, nine times out of 10. And if they get the chance to do a sports case, they'll offer to do it for nothing or next to nothing because it will put their name in the page because it'll be something fun for them to do, something different. So historically, for someone like me who only is doing sports law now, it's been more difficult to earn as much money as you can in other areas because so many people want to do it. Clubs know that. Clients know that. Everybody wants to work for them. So they can push the prices down to a certain extent. And also, a lot of the work we used to do and that I started out doing was either pro bono or, or if you're representing an athlete or a runner uh, who has been done on a doping charge, that individual is not going to have much money at all. And if you're for the regulator, 
the regulator often doesn't have that much money to spend on lawyers compared to what a bank would or a big retail company or Amazon or whoever it is. So um, I wouldn't let people get carried away with it. There's loads of money. On the other hand, as I was saying earlier, you know, the, the commerciality of football in particular, but some other sports, boxing, Formula One, you know, it's tennis. It, it, it's become so big. There is so much money now in the broadcasting deals that at the top end, if you can get into the top end of this market, um, if you can represent the big clubs, for example, um, in big disputes about things like financial regulation or ownership or things like that, then you begin to be paid similar to what you would if you were representing other big commercials. So it is now possible um, at least for someone lucky enough like me, who's got that client base at my level, to 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 do um, to to earn decent money. But it's uh, you wouldn't necessarily choose sport to earn money. You just choose normal commercial. But you choose sport because you love the work. That was a segue, a perfect segue, I'd say, into the FIFA Asian regulations, and in particular, which is the big red light when we speak about the regulations, the commission caps that have now been imposed on football agents working around the world. What is your view? You've had many conversations around this, particularly on, on the Sports Law podcast. You had a roundtable with a couple of leading agents. Um, you have many agents who you work with as well, who are your clients. How has the FIFA agent regulation changed the landscape for football agents going forward? Yes, and again, I'm involved in one of the legal challenges to be legality of these um, regulations. But I think I've probably said enough publicly already if people know my views. I think in particular the commission cap is very unwise, arguably, um, strongly arguably, unlawful, anti-competitive. But I think it's just a bad thing for football. People can have their own views about whether agents get paid too much or too little. But it ultimately is a matter of choice. No one forces a club or a player to pay an agent a certain amount of money. And if an agent represents a player well, and that player is able to earn a very high salary because they're one of the best players in the world, then the agent will also earn to the extent that they are representing the player well. You have two sides in a bargain. A club will try and get the player for the least amount of money it can pay, and the player will try and get, they have a limited life as a player, they will be trying to get the most of money. And the agent will often be playing a very valuable role negotiating on behalf of the player to get the best salary for that player. And the club will have often lawyers or people like me or commercial directors or football directors who are very experienced in negotiating. The players, well, the players will, will, will often have gone, not done a, the full school and they'll have gone to be players. They need someone to stand up for them, to negotiate their rights negotiate good contracts for them. You know, most players will be very happy for their agent to take 5% or 10% or whatever they have agreed of their salary if the agent gets them a good salary and gets them a, a, or a good transfer. But that's up to them. They don't have to. They don't have to have an agent. But if they do, they can choose what to pay the agent. To turn around and say, it's illegal under our rules to pay anything more than 3%, which is what the cap is for anyone earning over, any player earning over $200,000 a year. 
to say that is remarkable and uh, anti-competitive. And ultimately, it's not just um, uh, damaging to the football agents and the agency industry. In my view, it's damaging to the players as well because the agents are there to offer representation to the players and the players should have a choice of which agent to uh, employ and how much to pay their agent. And for agents to be forced to actually earn less than they can for doing their work by a city rule that's unnecessary uh, makes it more difficult for the players to choose the best agent and makes it easier for the clubs uh, to uh, have the advantage in the negotiation against the player. i give you another example because I've been involved in a few cases with Africans who have been young players who've been picked up by clubs in Europe, been picked up very early on as young players and have not necessarily been given the types of... You can't give a contract to a player under 17 in England, but you can give them scholarships and they often do do, and they shouldn't do this, but they often do do these sort of pre-contract agreements with players, whereby they say, you know, we'll give you all this scholarship, but then when you turn 17, you have to get paid this wage, and you have to do this, and you have to stay with the club. And one of the new things FIFA regulations says is that an agent can't even approach a young player to represent them until six months before their first, before the age they can sign their first professional contract. And in um, in England, that's age 17. I understand in a lot of Africa, that's age 18. That means an agent can't even approach the player. So that young player, often 14, whatever years old, is stuck in a room with uh, a club which has got all the sophisticated people telling them to sign this contract or pre-contract and has got no one that they can turn to to give them advice or represent on their behalf. Now, FIFA says... This rule is to protect the players from agents, you know, from these bad, greedy agents. Well, of course, there are some bad, greedy agents, but there are also bad, greedy clubs. You, you have this problem on both sides. And my point is that players, especially young players, they need representation. They need independent advice. And really what these regulations are in danger of doing is not just punishing the agents. Uh, who are often easy targets in the press, but it's punishing the players. I think that's a very powerful thing that you said, Nick. And then I remember when we were running our hashtag FIFA Age Agents Rex series, when we spoke to yeah. Mohamed Salah's agent, Zasha and Faha, he was but very adamant that the new regulations are very unnecessary. And he spoke highly against the Caps because whether people like it or not, here in Africa, not a lot of top transfers tend to happen and more often than not it's hard for an African player to get to transition to Europe so you you're, you're literally reducing the ability of an agent to even do their job enough to take care of the players because agents are more or less like parents of the players so on all the episodes I kept asking the question where was FIFA when all of these decisions were being made because mm -hmm. FIFA claimed that they are for the players but I haven't seen any articles. I haven't seen any LinkedIn posts. There's nothing being spoken about it. And this will come back and shoot them in the foot. My question to you is, how likely is it that all of these regulations can be totally scrapped and then FIFA works with all the important stakeholders like yourself, with 
other top agents and lawyers and clubs to come up with a regulations that fits for everybody where there's no barriers to entry and there's no barriers to doing work. Well, that would certainly be the best result. And, and, and that's what we always wanted. And I've been representing the Association of Agents in England, all the major agents, for many, many years. And I remember back in 2015, when FIFA first started to decide to get rid of their old system of licensing football agents. You used to have FIFA licensed agents with exams and so on. And they decided to get rid of this. And we, as the Agents Association, uh, were strongly against that and said to FIFA, no, you do need some regulation. You need some effective regulation. But you need to listen to us. You need to listen to the people who are involved in the industry to understand how to regulate. And FIFA said, no, no, we don't need regulation. You, you, we can get rid of it in party. A few years later, FIFA realized they made a big mistake and they do need regulation. But they make the same mistake again. They don't listen to anyone in the industry. They refuse any effective consultation with any of the big uh, and representative agencies throughout the world. And they introduce something uh, to please the press or whoever it is uh, with these silly caps and some other silly rules uh, without really understanding or appreciating the likely effect on the market. And, you know, throughout all of this, they received plenty of letters from people like the Association of Football Agents in England saying, we would like a proper consultation with you. And they just refused to listen. Um, and, and that's most unfortunate. And let me give you another example of how this can play out. So there's this cap, as we know, on 3% of, uh, of the player's earnings if you're representing the player. But the cap if you're representing the selling club, is 10% of the transfer fee. Why? why? Why should you be able to charge 10% to a club on a transfer fee, but only 3% on the player for the wages? It's not helping the player. It's doing the exact opposite. Because you know what transfer fees do? The higher the transfer fee, the less money for the player. That's how it works. You're a player, and let's say Manchester United wants to buy you, and Manchester United has £10 million, and your wages will cost £5 million, so they'll pay a transfer fee of £5 million. If the transfer fee is £8 million, they've only got £2 million left for your salary. So the higher the transfer fee, the less money there is to pay the player. And what the rules are doing is incentivizing agents to work for clubs to make the fees go up, which is now going to be at the expense of the player. Now, no one has thought that, but you know that's the problem. That is one of the problems. So, in answer to your question, what's the likelihood of challenges succeeding? You know, I don't have a crystal ball. I think there are very good, strong arguments, and there are challenges in a number of different jurisdictions and courts being made to these rules. It could easily be that one or more of those challenges succeeds, and FIFA will be forced uh, to get rid of at least the worst parts of the regulations, because some of it is good, in my view, but at least get rid of the worst part, like the caps and so on, and like what I've explained. But, you know, even if that didn't happen, I think what we might see is what happened before, which is FIFA make a, a, a silly mistake. They don't listen to the industry. It takes them a few years and a great big mess to realize 
and then they get rid of whatever the stupid rule was that caused the problem in the first place. Because ultimately, there are lots of criticisms you could make about the international football market, but it is something that exists and kind of works, although, you know, there's lots of things I would change about it if I was starting from scratch. What you don't need to do is introduce restrictions that just stop it working entirely. That just doesn't make sense. Fascinating articulation of a really complex issue and we are yet to see where this leads with all the legal challenges that are coming ahead for FIFA and all the trouble that is going to be caused within the industry until we get to a practicable solution for everyone. Finally, Nick, we would love to hear your view on an issue that is much more localized happening in England very much. And this is the issue of the independent regulator. One of the main suggestions or recommendations rather from the report led by Tracy Crouch MP in the fan-led review of English football. Is the independent regulator fit for purpose to deal with all the complex football governance issues happening within the Premier League itself? Is the Premier League going to be very reluctant to forego so much autonomy to a body that many will say, you know, it is in perspective independent, but how truly do we know that that one person does not have any political motives, for example, who would that independent regulator be? Would you be the independent regulator, Nick? Uh, fascinating question. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting as it be, uh, no, because they stop me doing all the work I do. Um, <laughs> it's a really interesting development. One of the most interesting developments uh, for a sports lawyer in, in my life as a sports lawyer. Um, I, I, I have, generally speaking, been persuaded of the idea uh, of an independent regulator for a number of reasons. The main one is this. When you look at something as important as financial regulation, which is one of the key things they're going to regulate, I've been involved in so many cases where the regulations are made by a league and that league is composed of a number of clubs who have competing interests. And at different times in the business cycle, those clubs will, for example, want to stop one of their competitors spending more money than they've got so that they can't compete with them as effectively as they could if they could spend that money. We can have a system which says everyone spends the same money. We could have that kind of system, but that's not what we have. The whole idea of financial regulation in, in UEFA and in England is meant to be to promote financial sustainability. It's, not, it's never been about competitive balance. But where you have clubs making the rules, and the reason they're making them is not about financial stability. You know, they're often stopping owners putting money in the club. It's about restraining competition. Or it might be the other way around. They, they, you know, the clubs making the rules might want to punish those who don't have the money. Or the rules may be made, as they are, to support the bigger clubs against the smaller clubs. Because the way financial fair play rules generally have worked so far is that it, they don't cap what you can spend. Rather, um, the more you earn, the more you spend. So Manchester United will always be allowed to spend much, much more than Leicester City, for example. Uh, so it maintains the status quo. You have all those arguments that the problems with clubs basically making up the rules themselves and regulating themselves. They can't be independent because they're all conflicted. So on something 
fundamental like financial sustainability, there is a good argument that the regulator who makes those rules or enforces them ought to have some independence in in how they how they do it. It obviously should not be politically controlled. Uh, the appointment should be um, like you have with financial regulators. It should not be a, a political appointment. It, it should be highly experienced, independent person. Um, and its scope at the moment is limited to things like financial sustainability, breakaway leagues, um, and owners and directors tests. So I think generally it's a good idea, but how it's going to work in practice will be very, very interesting. I don't agree more, Nick. It's, it's going to be fascinating sort of development to go by. And I don't think this is just restricted to England. I think this is significant for football governance all over the world, where you speak about politics and sports being in such an interaction together and you now getting a government leading the governance or the new governance of football. There's many conflicts that come with that. I uh, think that is not only other. Yeah. There's that problem as well to avoid, but there is also, you know, you, you look at the biggest corruption scandals there have been in sport. Consider FIFA, for example, uh, with, with Seth Blatter and the others. Um, that huge scandal, although also there's been arguments about um, the, the way in which the uh, recent Qatar World Cup was allocated, or if you look at the big scandal in international athletics uh, a few years ago of covering up of certain doping and so on, the common theme in those scandals is the same person who owns the commercial rights of the sport is regulating the sport. And the problem is, if it's the same person, they're always going to be thinking about how to increase the commercial rights at the expense of effective regulation. Well, certainly that's what has happened in the past with FIFA and international athletics. And so to have some kind of greater independence, not state-run, very against political interference, but independent regulator that takes it out of the hands of the person who's there just to bring in the most money. And by the way, I think they do a great job in bringing money, but to have the regulator being independent, I think that there are good arguments for that. I think that's very fantastic. And for me, what I look into, it's a more ethical sports world where we, get, we tend to understand that certain things like doping, certain things like corruptions, like racism and all the social vices will gradually reduce because now we have more ethical leaders out there who are being checked consistently by independent regulators who themselves are very, very ethical. There we have it. Nick DeMarco, KC, a top, top, top sports lawyer. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I'm sure you can see me smiling all the way through uh, just getting your perspective and really getting to understand your journey in sports law. I know this is not the last time you will come on the podcast. More conversations will come through. We are so grateful for your time, Nick. Thank you very much once again. And to our audience, that is Nick DeMarco. Check out his podcast as well. Read a couple of his articles. You will really enjoy it. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you very much, guys. I really enjoyed it.